This is probably the first time I've spoken with great faith and trepidation at the same time. I had been planning a couple of weeks ago to continue with Pastor McAdams' focus on 1 Corinthians. And the next part of the passage in chapter 11 was to be on the Holy Communion. And I was preparing for that. I already had something like 20 pages of notes and quotes until last week when I thought, somehow this is not coming together. And this word came to me, the riches of Christ. So with grace, Pastor McAdam gave me the option to preach on what the Holy Spirit would put on my heart. So I thought, okay, the riches of Christ. If you go on to Amazon, you'll find there are at least 20 different books with that title, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. Whether it's the Puritan minister, Thomas Brooks, who wrote a book about that in 1655, or John Bunyan's treatise called Saints' Knowledge of the Love of God, or The Unsearchable Riches of Christ, all the way up to authors, Christian authors of the 20th and 21st centuries, book after book, with the title, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. So who am I, in an hour or less, to speak about that? But this is what I feel the Holy Spirit put upon my heart. And so, as we open this morning with a word of prayer, my prayer is, that the focus is on him and the great riches that we have as believers. The focus is not on me. Lord forbid that it ever be that. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have so much in Christ. And yet through this pilgrimage walk we call life, sometimes it seems we're just scratching the surface in what we really have in him. This morning, Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit will work within hearts of those who do not know you and will encourage the hearts of those who do, that we will realize to a greater depth what we have in Jesus Christ, who not only died for us, gave his life for us, rose from the dead and is coming again, but has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, who has placed us and seated us in heavenly places, who has given us not just new life, but an everlasting life in him. And Lord, we are thankful that we have all eternity to come to know the depth and width and height and length of his unsearchable riches. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about riches 
and wealth. The Bible says a lot about wealth. Some of it not so good. This is the good part of the story. The spiritual riches that we have. You know, we could go to Fort Knox with all the gold there. Doesn't compare to the riches in Christ. You could sit down with the great CEOs who are multi-billionaires. Their wealth combined doesn't equal the riches of Christ. You could have the riches of Solomon and still not have the riches we have in Christ. We know that the Bible says in the Old Testament in 1 Kings that Solomon's wisdom and riches exceeded every king on earth. But the wisdom and riches of Christ and his heavenly kingdom is far greater. Remember what Jesus says in, uh, recorded in Luke. One greater than Solomon is here. This morning we'll be looking at a few passages from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. In chapter 3, verse 7, he writes, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of grace of God, given unto me by effectual working of his power, unto me who am less than the least of the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if that doesn't stir one up, I don't know what will. And if you want to substitute a synonym for unsearchable, we could say the limitless riches of Christ, the boundless riches of Christ. We also see in Ephesians the phrase, the exceeding Riches of Christ. Is this grace given, says Paul, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? We talk about it. We sing about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We even can describe it with acronyms. G-R-A-C-E. God's redemption at Christ's expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. In 1828, in Webster's Dictionary, they gave several definitions of the word for grace. Number one, appropriately the free, unmerited love and favor of God, the spring and source of all the benefits men receive from him. Second definition, the favorable influence of God, divine influence, or the influence of the Spirit in renewing the heart and restraining from sin. Third definition, the application of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. Definition number four, a state of reconciliation to God. And there were more. And every one of those definitions in the 1828 Dictionary had a Bible verse with it. How far have we fallen? 
from those days. Yes, grace can be described. It can be defined. It can be the topic of numerous sermons and hymns. But most importantly, as a gift of God, it can be, and it must be, experienced personally. He was born prematurely. They thought he would not live. He was the 18th child of his parents' 19 children. The son of Christian parents, at the age of eight, Charles Wesley attended Westminster School for the next 12 years, to 10 years, and later at Oxford, where he attended for nine years, where with his brother John Wesley, he formed the Holy Club, whose members met for prayer and fasting and Bible study, whose members went out and fed the poor, visited prisons, taught orphans how to read. At the age of 27, young Charles Wesley was ordained, and a year later, with his brother John, they sailed across the Atlantic to the colony of Georgia, where John would be a missionary to the indigenous people and an evangelist. And Charles would be the secretary to the founder of the colony, Colonel Oglethorpe, and would serve as a chaplain. And yet, because of poor health, only seven months later, Charles Wesley returned to England. He was the son of a preacher. He was the son of a devout mother. He had gone to college. He knew scripture. He was a founder of the Holy Club. He went on a mission to Georgia. And yet, he had no assurance of personal salvation. Two years later, on the 21st of May in 1738, 30-year-old Charles Wesley experienced the gift of grace, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of salvation, and peace with God. According to the Julian calendar, the 21st of May happened to be Pentecost Sunday. And this experience of the new life in Christ was three days before his brother John had his conversion at Aldersgate. Soon after this experience, Charles Wesley began writing hymns. One of them starts like this. And I identify with this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, 
and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? One year later, to the very day, May 21st, 1739, Charles Wesley wrote a poem, came a hymn, to commemorate the first anniversary of his conversion. It's 18 stanzas long. I will spare you the 18 verses. <laughs> but I will read to you the first seven. And when you hear verse seven, you'll say, oh, I know that hymn. We usually sing verses, stanzas seven through 15. But here's the rest of the story, starting with verse one. On the anniversary of his conversion, Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above, the church and earth and heaven. On this glad day, the sun of righteousness arose. On my benighted soul, he shone and filled it with repose. Sudden expired the legal strife. Twas then I ceased to grieve my second real living life. I then began to live. Then with my heart, I first believed. In fact, in his journal, Charles Wesley writes about this whole conversion. And he says at one point, I believe. I believe. Then with my heart, I first believed. Believed with faith divine. Power with the Holy Ghost received to call the Savior mine. I felt the Lord's atoning blood close to my soul applied. Me, me he loved, the Son of God. For me, for me he died. I found and owned his promise true, ascertained of my part. My pardon passed in heaven, I know, when written on my heart. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. So what is grace? What is grace? Let's think a minute before we delve into that topic. Again, thinking about riches, in Hebrews eleven twenty four begins, it says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of a season, esteeming the approach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. I've already mentioned how in 1 Kings chapter 10, it mentions that Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And how Jesus, as recorded in Luke, said, the queen of the south shall rise in the judgment with the men of this generation 
and condemn them. But she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. We see in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This I will do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul is required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. And in verse 27, Jesus says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And I say unto you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So let's take a look and explore the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's been called the Alps of the New Testament, the letters to the Ephesians. The first three chapters, as we well know, are doctrinal. The last three chapters are more practical. The three, first three chapters speak of our wealth in Christ. The last three, our walk in Christ. Paul was a pastor of the church in Ephesus for three years. And he begins his letter with these words. Grace, starting with verse 2. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to one of the most amazing sentences in all of Scripture. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We see the work of God the Father. We see the work of God the Son. We see the work of God the Holy Spirit. And it begins like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We see that phrase, in Christ or in him, over and over and over again in just this first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father. The word blessed there is not the same word that's used in the Sermon on the Mount. There, the word makarios means happy. In this particular case, the word blessed is from the Greek word ulogatos, where we get the word eulogy, giving praise and thanks and speaking so well of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And it continues on, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, 
wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. There's only two places in Scripture where that word accepted is used. In Luke chapter 1, verse 28, and the angel came, and came unto Mary and said, Hail, thou art highly favored or accepted. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. So we see that God the Father is written about by Paul. And we see what God has done. We also see what God the Son has done, starting in verse 7. In whom we have... Now get a hold of this. This is when you want to fasten your seatbelt. Not because the road is bumpy, but because it is so amazing. What do we have in Christ? And Paul says, he mentions some of these riches, beginning with redemption through his blood. The word there means liberated, because you've received a receipt for a ransom. Deliverance of a payment of a ransom. We have redemption through his blood. One of the riches we have in Christ. Redemption. Grace. God's redemption at Christ's expense. Number two. We have the forgiveness of sins. And Paul writes, according to the riches of his grace. The word Plutos, not anything from Disneyland, by the way, it's not Pluto. But Plutos, which means great, riches, means an abundance of wealth, a plentitude. You know, it's incalculable. Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary on this verse, there's no remission of sins without redemption. It was by reason of sin that we were captivated and we cannot be released from our captivity. But by the remission of our sins, this redemption we have in Christ and this remission through his blood, the guilt and stain of sin could not no otherwise be removed from the blood other than by the blood of Jesus. All our spiritual blessings, writes Matthew Henry, flow down to us in that stream. The great benefit which comes freely to us was dearly bought and paid by our blessed Lord. And yet, writes Henry, it's according to God's grace. Nothing that I have done, nothing that I can work for, Nothing that I can attain except by grace. Matthew Henry writes, Christ's satisfaction and God's rich grace are very consistent in the great affair of man's redemption. God was satisfied by Christ as our substitute and our surety, but it was rich grace that would accept of a surety when he might have executed the severity of the law upon the transgressor. And it was rich grace writes Matthew Henry, to provide such a surety in his son and freely deliver him up when nothing of that nature could have entered into our thoughts nor have been otherwise found for us. Now verse 8. Wherein he abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, 
according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed. Previously unknown or hidden. That's what the mystery is, the word mysterion. It doesn't mean something foggy and like, you know, it's, it's not Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes. It's something that was hidden, but now is revealed. It was something that was not obvious to our human understanding, something we could discern by intellectual exploration of a topic. But now, this mystery of grace is made manifest to us. What a privilege. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him, in whom we also obtain an inheritance. So we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. We have an inheritance. Folks, that's just the beginning of the riches. That's just, that's just the starting point. In whom we have obtained an inheritance. You know, you may have some distant great-great-uncle who's been sitting on a pile of money. And then you get a call from a lawyer in East Overshoe, Wisconsin. Hey, you know, your great-great-uncle Cornelius left you a bundle of money. Wow, I didn't even know I knew him. We have an inheritance of Christ. The difference is we know him. In whom we've obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So we have blessings from God the Father, blessings from God the Son, blessings from God the Holy Spirit, in whom he also trusted After that, ye heard the word of truth, the riches of his truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Isn't that great? Sealed. It's not something that might be taken away next week. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. What great assurance can we have than that? The Lord's not playing some cat and mouse game. I'm with you one day, but the next day you've blown it and goodbye forever. The Lord who says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Never, ever, ever. So we are sealed by the Spirit. And then, in verse 14, which is our earnest of our inheritance. That word earnest means like the down payment, the pledge that will not be broken. And we have that down payment, it says, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom by his dear Son, as Pastor McAdam has often preached about, 
divine exchange. We just aren't out of darkness and sin, but we are placed into the kingdom of light, whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So is that all we know about the riches of Christ? No, we're just beginning, folks. And remember, there's at least 20 books on Amazon you can buy and read 300 pages. And I'm just trying to capture it in just a few minutes. We move to chapter 2 of Ephesians, starting at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. So first we have the riches of grace. And now we have the riches of his love. Even when we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. You know, we're not saved by love. We're saved by grace. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Ephesians 2, 6, we read, And he hath raised us up together. He hath made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, and it means like the eons to come. In fact, the Greek word eon is there. It's like forever and ever and ever. In the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches. Exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And that word exceeding, I'm not going to go through a whole Greek lesson today, but that word exceeding is hyper. You know anything that's hyper? Are you feeling hyper about this? Hyper, balo, it means surpassing upon this exceeding grace of Christ the exceeding riches of his grace surpasses anything else. It transcends. It goes beyond anything we can comprehend. In fact, sometimes it's called the incomprehensible riches in Christ. It's not incomprehensible because it doesn't make sense. It's incomprehensible because it's so huge that our finite brains can't quite absorb it. But our spirit does. And then Paul writes, For grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we would walk in them. When Charles Spurgeon, in 1882, I admit I wasn't there to hear it, But when Charles Spurgeon was to preach on the unsearchable riches of Christ, he wrote, This morning, I have a text before me which is a great deal too full for me. I can never draw from all its supplies. The exceeding riches of grace and his kindness through Christ Jesus. And Spurgeon wrote, Whitfield and Wesley might preach the gospel better than I do, but they could not preach a better gospel. 
Shut yourselves up in your closets and think of what you were and what you have been if it had not been for the kindness of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 of Ephesians. And we're just going to do the first few verses. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, you would, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, but now is revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And now we get to today's message, the unsearchable riches of his grace, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of grace of God, given unto me for the effectual working of his power. Paul says with all humility, unto me, who am the less of the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable, and you could put any number of words there, the unsearchable riches the incomprehensible riches, the immeasurable riches, the incalculable riches, the infinite riches, the countless riches, the innumerable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. So Matthew Henry, in his commentary, specifically writing about the richness of his unsearchable richness, writes this, Paul preached to the Gentiles about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Observe in this verse, Ephesians 3.8, how humbly Paul speaks of himself and how highly he speaks of Jesus Christ. I'm the less of the least of the saints. St. Paul, who is a chief of the apostles, calls himself less than the least of saints. He means on account of his having been formerly a persecutor of the followers of Christ, he was in his own esteem as little as he could be. Those whom God advances to honorable employments, he humbles and makes low in his own eyes. And where God gives grace to be humble, He gives all other grace. While he magnifies his office, he debases himself. Observe, writes Matthew Henry, how highly he speaks of Jesus Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the mighty treasury of his mercy, his love, and grace laid up in Christ Jesus. And that both for Jews and Gentiles, or the riches of the gospel are spoken here, writes Matthew Henry, are the riches which Christ purchased for and bestows upon all believers. And they are unsearchable riches. We cannot find the bottom of them, which human sagacity would never have discovered, 
and men could no otherwise attain to the knowledge of them by revelation. Now it was the apostles' business and employment to speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it was a favor he greatly valued and looked upon as an unspeakable honor to him. Unto me is this grace given, this special favor God has granted to such an unworthy creature as I. And it's the unspeakable favor of the Gentile world that to them the unsearchable riches of Christ are preached. Though many remain poor, writes Matthew Henry, and are not enriched by these riches, it's a favor to all of them that's preached among us, to have an offer made to us. And if we're not enriched with them, it's our own fault. So we have the riches of his grace. That's point number one. Number two, the riches of his glory. In Ephesians 1.15, going back to the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. For this cause I bow my knees, writes Paul, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might of his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. I think the last time I spoke, I told you about a student I had in the Concord schools many years ago, that when he was in the first grade, he asked his classroom teacher, Do you have Jesus in your heart? What a question from a six-year-old. And taken aback, she said, well, I hope I have the love of Jesus in my heart. That wasn't the answer he was looking for. My question to you is, do you have Jesus in your heart? That Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ. Sometimes it's called the four-dimensional love of Christ. The height, the depth, the length, the width. And Paul writes, and that passes knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God. I'm going to read to you just a few verses from another Charles Wesley hymn. O love divine, how sweet thou art. When shall I find my longing heart all taken up by thee? I thirst, I faint, I die to prove the greatness of redeeming love, the love of Christ to me. Stronger his love than death or hell, his riches are unsearchable. The firstborn sons of light desire in vain in depth to see. They cannot reach the mystery, the length, the breadth. And height. So we've seen a little bit about the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory. We also see about the riches of his love. Maybe you go in the hearts grounded in love. And now the riches of his goodness. Here's a little bit of a warning here. This is not all a feel-good sermon, by the way. Therefore, Thou art inexcusable, O man, 
Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. And we see in Romans chapter 2 it says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, shall escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works, the children of men. Psalm 107, verses 15, 21, and 31. In Isaiah, we read, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praise of the Lord according to the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. We also see of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. In Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath been first given to him and shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul writes to the Colossians, you know, those, there's so many verses that are 316s. This is one of those 316s. Colossians 316 that the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace. By the way, grace is not that lady in the choir with the crazy hair. Singing with grace in all your hearts to the Lord. What are the riches that we have in Christ, folks? Just ponder on this verse. Not only do we have his grace, Not only do we have the riches of his glory, the riches of his goodness, the riches of his love, the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, the riches of his forgiveness, redemption to us, pardon. But as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To me, that's riches enough, that one statement alone. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, God sees us as having the righteousness of Christ. Nobody can exceed that. Nothing can outdo that. 2 Peter verse 4, chapter 1, whereby we given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. Thomas Brooks, a 17th century preacher in England, wrote in 1655, and yes, you can buy his book on Amazon, by the way, the riches of our Lord Jesus Christ are permanent. They're permanent and abiding riches. They are lasting. They are unsearchable, inexhaustible, incomparable, durable riches. The excellency of the riches of Christ are above all the other riches of the world. 
The Scottish poet of this 18th century, James Maxwell, would write, How shall I my Savior set forth? How shall I his beauties declare? Or how shall I speak of his worth? Or what his chief dignities are? His angels never express, nor saints who sit nearest his throne. How rich are the treasures of his grace? No, this is a mystery unknown. O sinners, believe and adore this Savior so rich to redeem. No creature can ever explore the treasure of goodness in him. He has riches ever in store and treasures that never can waste. His pardon, his grace, yea, and more. His glory eternal at last. I was thinking this morning, I don't do that very often, by the way. <laughs> Dear brother in Christ, went to home to be the Lord this past January. He loved the Lord. He, his job was to be and was a police officer. And yet he was always sharing the Lord wherever he went. When he would send a bill to the light company or whatever, he'd always enclose with his check a gospel tract. If he went to the barber, he would share the gospel with the barber. I remember one Thursday evening at a church service, my dear friend said, you know, I'd rather have Jesus than a trillion dollars. Trillion dollars, that's a lot of money. But it'll go away. Christ never will. You know, I've read a few poems or phrases from Charles Wesley. He's not the only one that wrote hymns, by the way. Here's one from Fanny Crosby. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Wealth that can never be told. Riches exhaustless or mercy of grace, precious, more precious than gold. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, who shall their greatness declare? Jewels whose luster our lives may adorn, pearls that the poorest may wear. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, freely, how freely they flow, making souls of the faithful and true, happy, Wherever they go, oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, who would not gladly endure trials, afflictions, and crosses on earth. Riches like these to secure. Precious, more precious wealth can never be told. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Precious, more precious than gold. There's so much more that I could talk about, about the riches of Christ. My prayer is that even though perhaps I'm just skimming the surface, this will encourage each one of us to explore more in depth, not what we can have, but what we already have in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him as Lord and Savior and has accepted him as your Lord, I think back, as I mentioned earlier this morning, again about Charles and John Wesley. As I said, they were sons of 
devout Christians. They gave themselves to the study of the word. They both were educated at Oxford, receiving their bachelor and master's degrees. They went to the New World as missionaries. They formed the Holy Club. They were committed to serving the poor, visiting the prisons, teaching orphans how to read, giving food to those who didn't have any. And yet there was an emptiness inside that could only be filled by the indwelling Jesus Christ. Charles Wesley, as I said, wrote in his journal on that day of his conversion on Pentecost Sunday, 1738, I believe, I believe all that struggle and striving to try to be perfect before the Lord set aside when he realized that Christ was his perfection. And John Wesley, three days later, when hearing Luther's commentary on Romans, oh, justification by faith, John Wesley exclaimed, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Not everybody has the same experience. Everybody needs to experience grace. It can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, and receive not just reconciliation and peace with God, but a peace that endureth, a peace that passes all understanding, a joy that's unspeakable. You know, folks, with Jesus Christ, no matter what your financial status is, you are the richest people in the universe. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It was a great price. I could go on about the parable of the pearl of great price. There's so So much more I could say about this. But I think it's important to just think upon what I've said. Paul writes in verse 20 of chapter 3, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, And to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. There is so much there. Paul writes in Philippians. He shall supply all your need according to the riches in Christ Jesus. And I remember from, I think, 34 years ago or 35 years ago, Hearing Pastor McAdam, what a blessing he is and has been and continues to be, said, it's not our needs, it's our need, need of a Savior, need for forgiveness, need for redemption, need for Jesus. You'll supply all I need. That's the riches of Christ. His endless supply to us. His greatness, his glory, his goodness, 
Yes, and his grace within us. So why don't we tap into that? Sometimes, and I'm only speaking for myself, I feel like a rich man who's living like a pauper. You know, there's a story told, you probably heard it, I don't know if it's true or apocryphal, of a dad who gave his son a Bible as a graduation gift. You probably know the story. The son was expecting something wonderful, perhaps a new automobile. And his dad said, you know, open this up. He was so upset he didn't do that. Years later, he opened the Bible, and there inside was a key to a car. You see, we need to get right with God. We need to get into the Word. We need to realize that these unsearchable riches, why are they unsearchable? You can't explore them. You can go to university, you can study your intellect your efforts will not avail. And I'm not putting down intelligence or reading or anything like that, but they're unsearchable because to our natural mind, they don't make any sense. It doesn't mean they're not true. It doesn't mean they're not there. We have the riches of Christ. Let us begin to live with that reality, with that truth, just as we have the mind of Christ. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world? I don't even have this written down, by the way. And he loses his own soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? It doesn't. As they said, you know, you don't see too many U-Hauls following the hearse. You can't take it with you, but you can take the riches of Christ. Because you have the riches of Christ. How unsearchable his riches. How exceeding his riches. How inexhaustible his riches. How boundless his riches. How limitless his riches. How immeasurable his riches. How innumerable his riches. How infinite his riches. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that not only have we received your riches in Christ Jesus, but we are seated with you in the heavenlies. What greater news can that be to those who believe? And Lord, should there be anybody here who's doubting, who's uncertain of whether they're right with you? As Charles Wesley, at age 30, had put all his efforts into living a godly life, still did not have that inner witness of the Spirit until he said, I believe. Or his brother loved the Word, loved God, went to be a missionary to the indigenous people. It was only that time, that experience, when he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Lord, each one of us has a need. And for many of us, 
That need has been met through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray this morning for those who need assurance, your Holy Spirit will witness to them. For those who are outside the church, not the church building, but the fellowship, let them know they're not outside your love. That you stand at the door and knock. Say, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and him with me. And for those of us who are firmly settled in our faith in you, may we continue to experience and explore and express every day all the riches that we have in you. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.